when she hugged me, I realized that my kidney and my daughter's kidney were as close as they had ever been in life. Aww. Welcome to the third season of Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved community. Our purpose here is to empower our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. In this season, we're going to be taking a longer view of grief. The questions we would like to try to answer today are, can we find peace and healing? Is there a way to move on despite our losses? For the first time ever, our regular host, Michael Lieben, is actually going to be the guest on our program today. Our program today is From Tragedy to Blessing. It takes a look at a father who lost his daughter as a teenager, but who was able to turn his tragedy into blessings for others. Liel Lieben was born on April 27, 1997. She is Michael and Leora's third child. Liel was born with a double outlet right ventricle. In addition to having congenital heart defect, Liel was diagnosed with autism at the early age of four. At age 13, Liel developed epilepsy, which ultimately took her life on December 31st, 2012. Michael Lieben is the host of Heart to Heart with Michael, a podcast for the bereaved community. Today's episode features me, CJ Anderson, as guest host. I am a bereaved mother and the founder of GriefBridge. I was on Heart to Heart with Michael as a guest on both season one and season two. I am thrilled to be here on the other side of the microphone as your host today. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Michael, Michael. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here on this side. Michael, can you tell us about how you first found out about Liel's heart defect and what course was going to have to be taken necessary for her to survive? Liel was born, she was a cesarean. And so Leora spent a couple of extra days in the hospital. At routine checkout at day three, uh, the doctor on duty thought he heard a murmur. Nobody had heard it before. We noticed that Liel wasn't eating very well and she was kind of sweating and it was difficult for her, but nobody was particularly upset about it. On the third day when they heard the murmur, they rushed us down to pediatric cardiology and after a very extensive echo, they discovered that she had double outlet right ventricle, which means that the aorta is on the wrong side of the heart. And the aorta is the main artery that brings blood from the heart to the body. So then you have to ask the question, if that's the case, how was she even alive? How was she even getting blood into her body? And what happens a lot of times in nature when there's a major defect, Nature gives you a secondary defect, which sort of takes care of the problem, but not really. So what happened was she also had a VSD which is a hole in the wall between the chambers of the heart. So the blood that was supposed to go out from the heart was actually spilling over to the right side of the heart, the correct side of the heart, and finding its way out into the body. But you can't live like that for very long, and you can't just switch the aorta and put it to the other side. It doesn't work that way. So what they decided was that as long as that VSD was still working and not closing on its own, she was going to stay alive long enough for them to get her old enough and strong enough to do surgery, where they would then put a Gore-Tex patch across the wall of the heart so that the blood would be led to where the aorta is directly, essentially giving her four working chambers. And that was the plan. They warned us ahead of time that it's very common 
in these issues that sometimes the VSD, which had been keeping her alive, begins to close. And so they'll have to widen it a little bit so they can use it to put the patch across the heart. And we said, well, okay, that sounds reasonable. And they said, yeah, except for one thing. That part of the wall where the VSD is, that's the part that naturally paces the heart. So it's very likely that when we enlarge it, we're going to ruin her natural pacing, which means she'll need a pacemaker. So basically what we did was we traded up from double outlet right ventricle to a working heart with 100% heart block, which meant that the heart on its own won't beat or won't beat well enough. So she had a pacemaker, which was working 24-7, making sure that the heart would beat, which was, uh, you know, ultimately a really good thing. And, and that worked straight through to the end. That was less of a problem for us and for her in her early years, because by the time she had the pacemaker at age two and the work was done, the only future work that we'd ever have to do would be minimal repairs. We'd have to replace the pacemaker, um, the conduit that they put in as part of the Rostelli project needed to be replaced. All of these things were, were foreseeable, and she was basically okay. What happened, though, was that by around age four, we started thinking maybe she's not hearing well. Maybe she's deaf. She wasn't responding as well as we'd liked. And up until then, she had sort of been okay. She would she would talk a little bit. She would babble like a baby. Um, she would do all the right things. And then she just sort of started you know, not paying attention. Maybe she didn't hear. So we thought that she might be deaf. And she was eventually diagnosed with autism. And that put us in a whole new ballgame. I mean, I think we spent less time worrying about the heart than we spent worrying about the autism. The autism was affecting our everyday life. It affected the other two children. It affected where she could go to school. It affected us where somebody had to be home every day to pick her up off a bus at 4 o'clock. Somebody had to be in the morning outside with her to get her on that bus in the morning. So the children's lives were affected because who's going to be home today for Liel at four? And who's going to sacrifice and give up the rest of their afternoon until mom and dad get home and be with Liel and make sure that she doesn't hurt herself or anything else in the house? And that was more telling and more stressful and difficult, I think, than knowing that she had a difficult heart. That must have been very confusing and hard on both of you, I can't imagine. Did you see other, any other limitations in her growing up? No, not really. She was uh, her 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 gross motor coordination wasn't very good, but her fine motor coordination was very good. So if she got near a screwdriver, she could disassemble just about anything in the house. Couldn't put it back together again. But she <laughs> disassemble pretty much everything. I wrote about this in her eulogy. The joys of autism are various and many. If you can say things like "take the keys out of the chicken," and really mean it, then you're you're living with autism. Uh, we never knew where things would appear, where things would disappear from. Life was an adventure with a, an autistic child who was very, very curious. I understand that completely because I have an autistic grandson, but oh. his motor skills were affected where Liel's motor skills seemed to be um, perfect. No, she was Well, again, her gross motor skills weren't very good and she was hypotonic, so she walked funny. She was kind of floppy. But if she sat down and did something, she did it. She also had a tremendous mind. So Peter wanted to start learning how to drive. So she got a book with all the all the different road signs. And Liel learned every single one of them. Oh. Liel had a thing about flags and countries. We got her an atlas. She was out of her mind with joy. She learned countries. She learned flags. She learned capital cities. And she was learning English in a way that she didn't tell us. Because we spoke Hebrew to her at home, which was, I think, a mistake. The the uh, One of the therapists said she's got enough on her plate, don't speak two languages. So all my kids grew up speaking two languages, but we only spoke Hebrew to her. Except that she secretly learned English without telling us, just by listening. 
Amazing. That is so amazing. Well, here's how we figured it out. Uh, we were going over state capitals. And, you know, mm-hmm. this, the capital of Mexico is Mexico City. And in Hebrew, the, the name for Mexico City is Mexico City, because that's the name of the, of the city. Mm-hmm. But she said Mexico Ha'ir, which means in Hebrew, in English, Mexico, the, the city. Wow. So she made that trans. She saw it written out, Mexico City, made that translation, and decided it was Mexico Ha'ir, which is exactly right. But no one ever told her that. Absolutely so she, amazing. Bless her heart. Yeah. And then... The next thing, like she was diagnosed with epilepsy also? We found a, a wonderful home for her about two hours away in the north of Israel. And um, just about the time she was getting ready to move, she had a seizure. And we didn't know what to do about it. And everybody said, don't worry. Sometimes these happen and they don't come back. About a year later, she started having seizures on a regular basis. And then we had to treat her for epilepsy. And what's the thing there about it is that I got scared. I, I was able to take heart disease in stride. I took autism in stride. Knock me over with a feather when they said epilepsy. And everybody laughed and said, that's the one we know how to take care of. Every second kid up here is epileptic. And all the epilepsy people like to tell you that Julius Caesar was epileptic and he took over half the known world. Don't worry about it. What they don't tell you, or what maybe they don't always know about, is that up until about age 20, a young child is susceptible to sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. It has a name, SUDEP. They didn't tell us that. Wow. I didn't know they had a name. Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. Hi, my name is Jamie Alcroft, and I just published my new book, The Tin Man Diaries. It's an amazing story of my sudden change of heart as I went through a heart and liver transplant. I can think of no better way to read The Tin Man Diaries than to cuddle up in your favorite Hearts Unite the Globe sweatshirt and your favorite hot beverage, of course, in your Hearts Unite the Globe mug, both of which are available at the Hug Podcast Network online store, or visit heartsunitetheglobe.org. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Michael's program, please email him at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to our program. Michael, can you tell us now about the day that you lost Liel? I was working overnight um, in a hotel where I work, and I was supposed to get off at 7 in the morning. At a quarter to 6, I got a phone call, and I saw that it was from from the home where she was living. And that's never good. I said, well, what's wrong? She said she had a terrible seizure this morning. We were checking her every few minutes. There were seven kids in the apartment. We'd shower a kid, check Liel, shower a kid, check Liel. When came her turn, she was um, discolored and, and, and it looked like we lost her. So we got the ambulance and she's in a hospital now and she has some blood pressure and her heart is still beating, but we don't know a whole lot more. We got up there at a quarter to 12 which is just before the doctor was going home. And he was a wonderful, wonderful doctor. He put us right into it. He said, you got two choices, bad and really bad. And you should know that really bad is she might wake up. Immediately, immediately, 
I knew exactly what he was saying. I went straight over towards acceptance, which was good because I got there ahead of the family and waited for them. And uh, it took three days. We watched slowly. According to the laws here in Israel, you can't call death until you have brain death. So there was really little to do. He said, we're going to do this brain resuscitation procedure. If it works, it works. If it doesn't work, then we're heading towards brain death, and that'll take a few days. And we have to wait till everything shuts down. And then we have to do a CT of the brain to determine that there's no blood flow in the brain. And then we have to take everything and pass it over to two doctors who do not know the case, and they will then review everything and make the call. So that was Friday morning. It wasn't until Monday night at about 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock they were able to make the final call. By then, uh, the family had gathered. My kids, instead of going to grandma, we turned them around and put them in a taxi and sent them two hours north to be with us already on that same day. The hospital found a way to put us up in a small room as a family. We just suddenly set up house in a little apartment set up in the hospital, and basically we waited. Oh, and, my. I can't yeah. imagine. I'm so sorry, Michael. I somehow became very, very calm. I knew from the get-go where this was heading, and I understood that, you know, we had 15 years and eight months, and that's all we were going to get. Well, how was it that you then came to donate Liel's organs? Well, that's was it right then, or was it a few days later, or how did you decide this? It has to be right away, or it's too right late. Right away. So what happened was, on Saturday afternoon, Liel and I were walking around, uh, and we were talking privately, and she said, I want to talk about organ donation. I hadn't thought of it. It didn't occur to me. And I said, well, if they'll take anything, well, why not? They won't take the heart for sure, but maybe they'll take other stuff, whatever we can do. That sounds like a good idea. And then I put it in my head, and I forgot about it. And earlier on Monday, we were having the end-of-life discussion with the doctor that you have to have. And he said, there are two things we can do. We can, once they declare brain death, we can take her off all the machines except breathing and then she'll crash between one and 24 hours. Or we can take everything off because there's really nothing to do and just end it. I consulted with my rabbi and I sat with the kids and we talked about it. And uh, I came to the conclusion that so that nobody could say I didn't try something, I said to the doctor, okay, take everything off, leave the breathing on and let it crash. And that way no one can say we didn't try everything. And he said, well, we can do that if you really want to, but then it's useless for donation. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I forgot this. Liar and I talked about donation and we really want to do that. Well, the doctor lit up and things changed. He said, well, nobody ever asks us. Usually we beg people and they say no. So they didn't know how to deal with it. So the first thing he did is, well, that changes everything. What we have to do now is keep all the machines on and keep her warm and keep her body in some sort of stasis of, that appears to be living so that we can decide who wants what and what we can do. He said, regarding the lungs, because of the surgery, he wasn't sure if anybody would want them. But if somebody did want them, she'd have to move down an hour south to Tel Aviv because they didn't have a heart-lung machine, which would be necessary to take out the lungs. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, they found somebody in Tel Aviv who needed lungs. And wow. they, if they found a hospital that was willing to take a shot on her lungs, despite the possibility that they weren't the best lungs in the world. So at 3 a.m., she was ambulanced down to Tel Aviv. They got us a, a taxi and sent us two hours home to Jerusalem. And then we didn't see any her or know anything the next whole day. And in Judaism, the funeral has to be the same day or the next day. You can delay for a day if you're bringing in people from overseas. So my brother came in and we, we waited. That gave them the day to farm the organs. And we were able at that moment to save, hopefully, up to four women that same day. A 67-year-old wow. woman... 
uh, got the lungs. I hope I'm getting this right. A 54-year-old woman got the liver and a pancreas. A 45-year-old woman got a kidney. And a little girl who lives a few minutes away from us on the east side of Jerusalem, she got uh, the other kidney. And I understand you have a special story about meeting that little girl that received Liel's kidney. Can you share that with us now? Uh, The father of the girl used to work in in a school. My nephew's wife's friend my nephew and his wife live in new jersey in the the u.s her friend was studying in that school and she heard the last name lieben so she knows my nephew she doesn't know me so she called my nephew to find out if he was related to that lieben family that donated all these parts and he said well yes actually that's my uncle so my nephew then sent me an email So here's how it works. I get an email from my nephew that his wife's friend is studying in a school, met a guy named Hussein, whose daughter just got a kidney and maybe we're related. Oh, my gosh. How wonderful. I had to find out out from New Jersey (laughs) that the little girl who was seven and a half who got the kidney lives 15 minutes from my house. Wow. So first thing I did was went out and I bought the biggest Minnie Mouse doll that I could find. It's a huge Oh, thing. my gosh. That's so and, cute. And I went to the school. I met him, and it was a very, very interesting, somewhat difficult moment. And emotional, he said, I'm sure, emotional. Very, very emotional. And he said, you have to come see us or we're coming to see you, but we have to get together. Now, that usually doesn't happen. You need the donor's family to approve uh, a meet. So we arranged it as fast as we could. Now, I, I'm a filmmaker, so I, I called him up and I said, is it okay if I bring a cameraman? And they said, yes. So we have the whole thing recorded. Um, no, nobody else in my family could go, but I had to go. So I went to their house and I met them and I met that little girl. And when she hugged me, I realized that my kidney and my daughter's kidney were as close as they had ever been in life. Oh. That's wonderful. I was five hours old when I had my first surgery. The only advice I can really give someone like that is to be there for your family. This is life and you have two choices. You either live it or you sit in a corner and cry. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. Join us on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time on Spreaker, our blog talk radio. We'll cover topics of importance for the congenital heart defect community. Remember, my friends, you are not alone. If you've enjoyed listening to this program, please visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.org, and make a contribution. This program is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to educate, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at congenitalheartdefects.com. For information about CHD, hospitals that treat CHD survivors, summer camps for CHD families, and much, much more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at Michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Michael. Michael, can you tell us how you feel you have been able to heal and achieve peace with your daughter's death? I don't think you can heal. I think what you can do is change 
and adapt and find a way to take it with you. There was some comfort in knowing that we saved four lives that day. So even though that same week we were sitting together as a family and crying, knowing that there were four other families that were jumping up and down and singing and dancing made me feel better. I don't think you can give meaning to death, but we can give it some additional value. So knowing that we had helped those families gave me some value, gave me an understanding that a terrible thing happened to us, but that four really wonderful things happened to other people. I'm happy that we, in our tragedy, were able to turn some of it around and give somebody something positive. Does it give you comfort knowing that Liel really lives on in four other people? This was a decision where life and death were no longer a part of it in terms of Liel. She was gone. So we could give life to somebody else. So A, if you save a life, that in Judaism is the most important commandment of all. You can throw away all the other commandments if it'll help you save a life. That's important. That is so important. You're absolutely right. There's no better way to immediately and with great significance to memorialize her. I love that. Giving life from her to somebody else is the best way to memorialize her. And number three, quite frankly, as a parent, any part of her that can still walk around, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I bet that's an amazing feeling to know that, you know, out of all the loss that is there, that, you know, she did make a difference. And she is making a difference not only in those four lives, but those four lives of those families also. And that's a wonderful gift that Liel has given to this world. Absolutely. We wish we didn't have to do that, but we didn't have a choice really. And once that, once that part of the equation was moot and there was nothing for us to do there, it was the easiest decision we could possibly make. And above all, you know, do the right thing. Absolutely. And, you know, in helping others, you and I have both learned that in helping others, we heal ourselves. Same thing with grief bridge. I, I don't like that. I had to, you know, found grief bridge but when I see the thousands of people that I'm impacting every day, then it just makes it so that my child's life was not in vain and there was a purpose. So Let I me, understand what you're saying completely. I want to ask you something I've asked other people on this program. When you are doing something to help others, do you feel an increased sense of healing at that moment that it's not only for them, but it's also really good for you? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I'm going to laugh when I tell you this, though, but sometimes I open up some of my workshops and I'll jokingly tell people that, of course, you know, in helping others, you help people. And I'll say, welcome to CJ's healing party. Absolutely. So no absolutely. question about that. And, and that brings us, I think, to the other level of peace and healing for me is the program that you and I are recording right now. Um, when Anna Jaworski, the producer, came to me and asked me what I do a program on grief. She said, I want to do a program on grief, but I'm not bereaved. It's got to be somebody who's bereaved. Can you do it? I said, well, how many do you want? And she said, I want to do 12. I want to do one a month for a year. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I'll do three. And if I'm still, (laughs) if I'm still alive after the third one, we'll do all 12. And this is episode 20 something. We're in our third year now. I don't, I've lost count, but we're in our third year. So So tell us how this program has helped you heal along the way too. Well, it has a lot to do with the themes that we choose. On our first year, we talked about you're not alone. Uh, In our second year, we talked about celebrating life. We found in our first year that our listeners were okay, but they were a little depressed that we talked about the moment of death 
so many times that it was becoming difficult. So we did a big turnaround in the second year. We said, okay, we're going to call it now a celebration of life. And we want to hear the good stories that, that help you when you remember somebody. And people started telling us things that make them smile about their memories. And now in our third year, we've, the biggest revelation that we've had is that how we remember our loved ones is the way other people will remember them because it falls to us to tell their stories. Absolutely. And, so, and I think when you're doing that, you're validating their grief walk, but also yeah. giving them hope as they yeah. listen to it. You know, it oh. validates where they're at and it's okay to grieve, but you're giving them hope for the future. Absolutely. And another thing that we did was that we widened out the scope. This program is not only about the congenital heart community, although that's where it was born. And that is the big foundation of this program. But we recently spoke with somebody who lost his wife of 28 years. We spoke to an actor who was in part of a, uh, a team of four guys who did comedy for 50 years, and two of them now have passed on. So we spoke to him about his relationship with people that he worked with for 50 years. That's a loss. And we started identifying loss and grief in places we hadn't thought about. And then we began to realize, well, that's really, really important because this touches everybody. And everybody, when they hear one of our stories that we bring out, they can relate, even if it's not the same. The guy lost his wife, but if you lost somebody else, you can relate because he tells you about what it's like to be with someone you love for a long, long time. And then suddenly they're ripped away, right? As, yes. a, as a mother, you, you know what it's like. And mm -hmm. I know what it's like as a father, our circumstances are different, but they're not really different. Well, what I love about your show, Michael, is that a lot of times I will send um, bereaved parents that need more than just a monthly um, meeting or workshop with me. I'll send them to Grief Share, and they will say, well, it didn't relate to me because they talked about a divorce or they talked about losing their 90-year-old grandparent. You know, right. it didn't, you know, they so it didn't relate to them. It didn't validate them. But your show when it, you know, it hits all different people. So the people that, you know what I mean? Just like you said, loses a, a husband or a wife, they can tune yeah. into your show, losing a husband or a wife, exactly. you know, losing a child. They can tune into your show, losing a child. So they can tune into different phases of grief in your show. So that although they might not listen to every single one of them, right. you're there to help them for that single thing that they really need help for. Well, that's, that's what I love about your show. Well, it's important to know that because all the programs are archived. So you can go all the way back to the very first episode and they're fresh and brand new. If you've never heard them, you can pick and choose exactly. the ones you like. I don't think anybody will actually sit and binge listen to all of them. That would be, <laughs> that would be very hard. But the titles are very clear and you can find something in all of that catalog that's good for you. The stories I find are some of the most interesting people I've ever met and what they share about life is so much more important sometimes even than what they share about death. And the two really come together. And this is this program is that point of interface where life and death and meaning all kind of come together like a big Venn diagram. And we're sitting right, right in the middle of that. That's the thing that really helps me. That's the thing where I find healing. When someone tells me in, a, in an email later, I heard your program and it really helped, that helps me. Well, you know, also, I believe that your program is a teaching program so that even if they listen to something that does not relate to them at that time, they'll have the tools later on when it does happen because we're all going to go through some kind of grief sometime Absolutely. in our life. Absolutely. And listening to your program, like you talked about with the husband and wife, just recently, um, another grief group called me and said that uh, a young man, 22, had lost his wife in, a, in an accident. Can mm -hmm. I help? Well, that isn't my 
you know, I'm, I help bereaved parents, you mm -hmm. know, I don't mm -hmm. help young husbands who lose their young wives because that's, I don't know anything really about that, but I was able to hook them up through, uh, you know, just through our resources, through my connection with you, through my connection mm -hmm. with other, th other people, I was mm -hmm. able to hook them up with another father or another man who had lost his young wife at the same time. So we are educating the world also, which is mm -hmm. wonderful because they're going to use these tools down the road. One family at a time. We're getting everybody. And finally, I think because we're, we're probably really short on yes. time. I was recently at a grief convention where it turns out I was probably one of the only ones there who wasn't an actual therapist. And what I learned from that was that, and what I learned from, from our second season is that people, when grief hits, sometimes they can't get out of bed. You told me this. This is your oh, story. Oh, yes. Yep. Can't get out of bed. That's and they, my story. And they, they have no reason to, to get up in the morning. They have no reason to go to work. And then something happens and they mm -hmm. get up. So you have grief bridge and grief walk and all the things that you do. I have this podcast and suddenly a whole new world opened up and I have things to do and reasons to do it. And, and there's a word for that. It's called post-traumatic growth. It's the thing that changes us for the better and enables us to go ahead and go on, get on with our lives, move ahead without moving away from the people we love, but to move ahead in our lives and to help others. Yes, that's beautiful. I would like to thank you, Michael for sharing your daughter and your experience and all of your advice with us today. It was very valuable. Well, thank you for allowing me to be on this side and to tell my daughter's story, which is something I love to do. And thank you for being the guest host so that I could do that. It's always a pleasure having you on the program, and it's always wonderful talking with you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Michael. Please join us at the beginning of the month for a brand new podcast. I will talk with you soon. And until then, remember, moving forward is not moving away. Thank you again for joining us. We hope you have gained strength from listening to our program. Heart to Heart with Michael can be heard every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next time when we'll share more stories.